From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is Are We There Yet? The podcast exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists have captured an image of a black hole swallowing a star. The phenomenon, called a tidal disruption event, was captured using ground-based telescopes and a space-based telescope called TESS. We'll speak with one of the NASA scientists who captured the image about the mysteries of black holes and what this means for scientists hoping to better understand our universe. Then we'll chat with our panel of expert scientists about black holes and gravitational waves in our weekly question segment called I'd Like to Know. We've got a great question from our listener Jim Hobart about how scientists measure gravitational waves. But first, we're joined by Nicole Cologne. She's a scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and joins us to talk about the recent discovery called Assassin 19BT, an observation of a black hole gobbling up a distant star. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this is a pretty exciting observation. Explain what you all found. Yeah, we found a black hole literally destroying a star apart. So it was discovered actually first by a ground-based survey of telescopes called Assassin. And Assassin saw this brightening happening around uh, what they thought was a star, but it's actually a black hole. And they then triggered another NASA satellite to follow this up and measure UV radiation coming from it. And then it also happened that NASA's test satellite captured this... um, this catastrophic event and it caught it at the very beginning of the event which we've never seen before Mm -hmm. so between all these telescopes we were able to collect a big picture look at this um, cataclysmic phenomenon that we call a tidal disruption event just how rare of an event is this um, to happen in the universe and then how rare is it for you to physically be able to capture it Sure. Yeah, we found um, or or we know that these types of events happen maybe every 10,000 to 100,000 years within a galaxy of our own size. So a star has to come close enough to the black hole to be able to get tugged and ripped to shreds. And that happens, you know, relatively infrequently. So the fact that we were able to see this, you know, with all these observatories and that we had a satellite that just happened to be looking in the right direction at the right time, that's TESS, you know, it, it was a lucky coincidence that it all worked out. Mm-hmm. And TESS was not set out to look for black holes, right? TESS is out there to find exoplanets. That's right. Yes. TESS was built um, to find planets around other stars. Um, but by nature of its technique of how it finds those planets, it's basically just measuring the brightness of stars over time. And so it's staring at huge swaths of sky. Uh, you know, for weeks on end. And then this um, galaxy, this black hole, ended up being in the right part of the sky where Tess was looking. So you're seeing these stars being kind of sucked into this black hole. What's actually happening? They're, they're being destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the uh, basically a star has passed close enough to the black hole where the black hole has such extreme gravity that it's essentially tugging and pulling on the star so that it ends up shredding it apart and the star instead of this you know giant ball of gas it turns into more of a stream of gas and then we see this event and we can measure the brightness there's there's um, energy you know being released from such an event Mm -hmm. now how far away is this because my concern would be um, our star getting sucked into one of these things (laughs) do we have to worry about that 
Yeah, luckily, so this particular event um, is 375 million light years away. So it's, you know, not in the neighborhood whatsoever. Quite far. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, However, I mean, there are black holes in our own galaxy. And, you know, we have one at the center of our galaxy as well. Um, But that also is still 26,000 light years away or so. Mm -hmm. So far enough away that we're not going to see any impacts of that in our lifetime, if anything. Uh, Nicole Cologne, capturing this kind of rare cosmic event using multiple um, observatories and methods, how does this help you better understand black holes as a whole? Forgive the pun there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, great question. Uh, So the great thing about all these observatories working together is that um, they can all observe, you know, at different times, um, but also at different wavelengths of light. So TESS observes in kind of like the visible light that you see every day with your own eyes. Um, But then the NASA SWIFT satellite also observed uh, at UV or ultraviolet radiation. And then um, the ground-based observatories observe at a variety of wavelengths. So when you put the whole thing together, you can see, you know, what's happening at this, um, you know, with this event at different wavelengths of light. And that tells you about like the different energies that come out from um, such an event and you know we can learn essentially more about the physics behind it and how to model these events. And is all this data being disseminated to different scientists so that they can you know kind of further study it as well? Yeah absolutely. Um, Actually the test data is open to the public uh, immediately once it's downloaded from the spacecraft and and calibrated. Um, It's put on the archive for anyone to see and um, similarly yeah the other telescopes have archives of their own, you know, that that people can access. So not just scientists, actually, you know, the general public can can look at the, um, the data as well. Mm-hmm. Can we go back to that that first finding by that ground based telescope? Um, what did scientists actually see? Did they see that kind of stream of of gas um, leaving the star or was it something else? And did they know exactly what it was right away? Kind of walk me through the process of, of identifying this as being a black hole? So um, so the, the ground-based survey is called Assassin, and it's actually a network of telescopes um, all over the world. And so one particular telescope was staring, you know, at kind of, again, at the right part of the sky, and it, it started noticing around this galaxy an increase in brightness, essentially. And that caused a trigger, so, like, the whole network was saying, okay, you know there's this increase in brightness, can we confirm this, essentially? And then they did, they looked, used other telescopes on the ground, and then triggered the NASA SWIFT satellite up in space to take a look as well. And so it was this initial increase in brightness that they saw Mm -hmm. um, that triggered the whole process. Uh, But they knew um, by the shape of of how the brightness increased that it was something more along the lines of a black hole shredding a star apart mm-hmm. versus like a supernova event, right. you know, like a, a massive explosion. Mm-hmm. This was more of like a slow rise. Mm-hmm. What was the timeline on on something like this? Like, do you know when that initial observation was made by Assassin? It's actually all happens pretty quickly. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so Assassin will, you know, see something and within um, sometimes, uh, typically like 24 hours, they can see um 
you know, that, that something's happening. So it's pretty real time. So mm. they triggered the SWIFT satellite in a few days and caught um, uh, a lot of the early um, data on this event. That's fascinating. Now, um, you know, with, with, with something like this, you know, this is a really cool event. This week we've had, you know, NASA release an animation of what a black hole looks like. I mean, are, are we kind of entering the golden age of, of black hole discovery right now? Yeah, you know, I, it certainly seems like it. I think um, as we've gotten more advanced telescopes and more advanced networks of telescopes and even more advanced, yeah, computers to make such simulations to complement the observations, it's it really is like a new era, um, essentially with um, also like all the gravitational wave detections that have been happening recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so we finally, you know, we have all these... All, all the facilities in hand to make such sensitive measurements. So it is an exciting time for um, black hole studies. Mm-hmm. And and finally, Nicole Cologne, um, these are all very exciting observations. Um, but what's ahead? What questions do you still have about black holes that, that you'd like to find the answers to? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, so, I mean, there's still, you know, it's great to see events like this. Um, because we can understand how black holes affect the environments around them. Um, but it's great to see more because, as, as I mentioned before, these events are relatively rare. So, you know, how common um, are they, you know, how do they have similar features when a black hole is affecting its environment, affecting a nearby star? So we want to be able to answer, you know, in questions that um, about whether all the black holes are come in the same flavor, you know, or because uh, there's already different levels of them, different mass black holes, for example. So seeing all the impacts that they can have on their environments is is important. And so that's something we can continue studying. And we want to make sure one doesn't open up close enough to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we've been speaking with Nicole Cologne. She's a NASA scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Nicole, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks again for having me. It's now time for a segment we like to call I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and pose them to a panel of expert scientists. We're joined today by the University of Central Florida planetary scientist and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. This week's question comes from Jim Hobart, and it's based on a recent discussion we had with the Walk About the Galaxy panel about gravitational waves. Josh Caldwell mentioned that gravitational waves actually stretched space and time, so the rulers you would use to measure them would actually stretch themselves. But Josh mentioned that a four-kilometer ruler at the LIGO facility would actually allow you to measure it. So Jim wants to know, why is this the case? How do you actually measure gravitational waves? Well, we're not looking at the reading on the ruler, whether it's 12 inches long or four kilometers long. We're using that four-kilometer long space to build up a giant cavity of laser light. And so first we're talking about the LIGO detectors. Yes. Okay, thank yes. you, Important. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So the, the laser light is in the LIGO detectors that are these gravity wave detectors right. here on Earth. Right. Okay. And they've got two four-kilometer-long perpendicular uh, laser cavities, basically, with using mirrors. They build up a very high-power uh, cavity, basically, of laser light that's in phase. And so we can imagine sort of a a string wave that's beautifully all lined up and in phase. And as 
space-time stretches, those wavelengths get longer, but I've still got a laser over here that's shooting in my normal wavelength of laser light into that cavity, and that's now no longer in phase with the light that's in the cavity, and so that produces an interference, and that interference is what's detected. Interesting. That, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically the way. I mean, so this is a... I, by challenge, the way, I challenge you to explain it in 30 seconds. I, I, yeah, <laughs> it, this is that. very challenging. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give props to the listener, Jim, uh, first of all, for having a great name. And second of all, <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. This is a question that that everyone who has really thought about this asks, right? And it is weird, right? So, I mean, it, you stretch the cavity, the wavelength stretches by the same fraction, and so that doesn't change the phase of the light, and so it wouldn't interfere. The, but but it's just like Josh says, is that a, a gravity wave is a very slow thing to pass, but the wavelength of light is very short, which means that you're shooting lots and lots and lots of photons into this cavity. The ones that were in there when the gravity wave first gets there are stretched, and they don't actually contribute to the measurement at all. It's the photons that you shoot in after the gravity wave is already there. Now it's regular wavelength laser light that has to travel a longer distance because mm -hmm. everything has stretched and you compare that to the four kilometer thing that's in the other direction which hasn't stretched or has stretched by a different amount and now those things are out of phase mm -hmm. so if this gravity wave passed at the same frequency as the laser light was shooting then you would never be able to measure this phenomenon it's the fact that the gravity wave passes kind of slowly and the laser light wiggles back and forth very very quickly so you can shoot lots of those laser photons into there during the time that the gravity wave is passing. And, and just as with light, gravitational waves can have a broad range of wavelengths. Right. And so LIGO is designed to look at particular yeah, at longer, wavelengths yeah. that are produced by black hole mergers or neutron star mergers, and that produces a certain frequency or wavelength of these gravitational waves. But in principle, there could be things that produce much longer wavelengths of gravitational waves or even much shorter wavelengths, so chirping of mm -hmm. space-time, and then you would need a different sort of detector with a different scale to mm -hmm. do that. Where are these wells physically located? Like, where where are you filling up this well with laser light? So there, there we have, in the U.S., we have two of them, right? Mm -hmm. The LIGO is, there's, we have one in Washington. Washington State. Washington State, right, and one in Louisiana. Louis mm -hmm. uh, and then we now have one that uh, partners with, that's the LIGO uh, project. We have a, a European version, Virgo, which is in Spain, I want to say. But these are physically here on Earth. They're physically, physically here on Earth, on Earth. Yeah. right. So they're actually in um, facilities that were built here on Earth. And right, you have to think about, I don't know, you walk around your house and it makes frequency and vibrations that mm -hmm. disturb other things in your house. So there's a lot of things they have to account for when they build these projects here in the real world. Um, in order Josh to... Caldwell's tummy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Get low-frequency vibrations. Yeah. If he were I sitting at that observatory... They don't let me go near like <laughs> yeah. Seriously, yeah. though. If they were if he were sitting at that observatory, the, the vibrations in his stomach would cause more of a vibration in those mirrors than the stretching, the gravitational wave passing through. It's, that is insane. It's insane it's that they can make these measurements. They're, they're able to determine... You know, that there's a gravitational wave and not Josh's stomach because Josh's stomach vibrates at a different frequency than those waves, what et cetera, et cetera. That? <laughs> That's a whole range of frequencies. We've recorded it now. It's so getting grosser than we wanted. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, to me, this is, you know, that, that, that the detection of gravitational waves is one of the really, I mean, it absolutely, even as someone who knows a little bit about it, it, it's, it blows my mind that technologically they were able to do it. So you're, you're using these very, very sensitive instruments mm -hmm. to measure these really long gravitational waves. Are, are, are we missing something because we're, 
we're only able to measure a certain frequency of these waves or will the technology get better that we can isolate more and more stomach vibrations from these <laughs> instruments so people are fascinated with my digestion <laughs> um, the LIGO observatory is tuned to a specific range of gravitational wave frequencies that is produced by a predicted and now we know an actually occurring phenomenon of these mergers of black holes. Uh, and there are efforts underway using the Arecibo uh, Observatory. In Puerto Rico, right? In Puerto mm -hmm. Rico, operated by UCF, uh, uh, to look at pulsar timing, which is looking at a very different wavelength of gravitational waves. And uh, demonstrations have been built of things that could look at much shorter wavelength gravitational waves as well. Um, so those are out there. We're looking at one part of the gravitational wave spectrum, as you will, uh, with uh, LIGO. Um, but there will definitely be other parts mm -hmm. of that uh, wavelength space to explore. Yeah, we're at the dawn of this new era of astronomy where we can look not just at electromagnetic waves, but at gravitational waves. So yeah, it, Josh said it. This is just the beginning, right? This is our first serious detection of gravitational waves. We will improve our technology and come up with new interesting technologies to measure different kinds of gravitational waves. It's going to be awesome. And what, I mean, do, Jim, do you know what the wavelength of the gravitational waves that was produced by those black hole Off mergers the is? No. Yeah. I don't know. So it's not, so that doesn't really correspond necessarily to this four kilometers mm -hmm. or, or, or that. That four kilometer length is to give us, because you're looking at a fractional stretching of space time. So the longer that is, the easier it is to measure the little tiny bit of mm -hmm. stretching that occurs. Yep. Even at four kilometers, it's only stretching by something like one one hundredth the width of a, photo, a proton. Which is very small, right? That's that. Uh, yeah, so so that, that's... <laughs> Turns I out know that. That's small. I know yeah, that's, that's there you go. Small. It is. That's <laughs> big. It's insane. So yeah, I mean, you just you couldn't do that with a shorter thing. But we have clever other ways of thinking about doing it mm -hmm. and, where you and could a lot have of the, smaller detectors. A lot of the challenge for the LIGO is basically keeping the mirrors, which are causing the buildup of this laser cavity... Mm -hmm perfectly still and exactly the right distance from each other. And so that's right. My indigestion or the truck mm -hmm. driving by causes the tiniest tremors in those mirrors. That's fascinating. And so, there, there are some ideas to build similar observatories in space. Um, oh, yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, but when you build something in space, it has different, uh, different challenges different for keeping everything aligned, um, for... Uh, what other things might be happening in between the two observatories, how far apart they have to be, and things like that. So it's it's a much different, it's it's even more challenging in a lot of ways to do these things in space than it is on Earth. Everything is harder in space. And scientists have already made some really cool observations using this. What, what else can you see, quote-unquote, um, as these get more fine-tuned? Well, we've seen the mergers of stellar black hole uh which just sounds cool, first right. of all. So, I'm sure scientifically that's that's incredible, but it sounds really neat. It's both hole. scientifically and, yeah, and it sounds awesome. Black holes that were produced from individual stars merging, but there are more energetic events that could produce a different uh, wavelength of black holes, so things potentially involving supermassive black holes. Uh, in theory, any reconfiguration of matter in the universe produces a gravitational wave, so... Me waving my arms around is redistributing mass in the universe, and that causes a, an unmeasurable change mm -hmm. in the shape of space-time. Uh, so all reconfigurations of matter uh, produce gravitational waves, and the ones that we can see would be giant and sudden things, mm -hmm. like involving very massive objects. Or even, we might, we might 
there's gravitational waves produced at the very beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, and so we might be able to see those at some point in the near future as well. Yes. yes. That is that is mind-bogglingly awesome, and I don't think that was a real word, but I'm going to go <laughs> with it. And blowing my mind every week, uh, Jim Cooney, Josh Caldwell, and Addie Dove. They're the hosts of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Uh, thank you all for being here. You yeah, thanks, Brendan. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts like this one or go to their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, I'd Like to Hear It, go ahead and send it in. Shoot me an email. The address is are we there yet at wmfe.org you can also send a tweet to the show it's awty mars are we there yet mars get it or find us on facebook you can just search for are we there yet podcast well that's going to do it for this episode be sure to follow us on social media for the latest space news and stay listening next week we'll talk nasa's commercial crew elon musk's starship and private investment into the space industry with a panel of space journalists This podcast is a production of WMFE, and support for it comes from our listeners. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. For more space news, visit us online at wmfe.org slash space, or show your support by visiting us at wmfe.org slash support. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.